Gracious Heavenly Father, we ask that you would send your Holy Spirit into our hearts that we would be able to, enabled by your grace, to glorify the name of your Son whose birth we celebrate tonight. It is in his name that we pray. Amen. You may be seated. I've noticed a lot lately the front is empty, and in seminary we call that the waterfall section because sometimes the preacher gets going. And Anyway, you may have noticed that um, tonight you didn't hear the, the typical readings with angels and shepherds and dreams and visions and Mary and Joseph and stables and all of that. Well, the reason is this. In the Episcopal Church, the lectionary that we follow, which is our our readings every week, um, we had three options for Christmas, and I chose to go with probably the least popular one, which is John's Gospel. And the reason I did that is because I love John's perspective, because what John does is he gives us more of a sort of cosmic or spiritual or heavenly perspective on who Jesus is and what's happening in his incarnation. So that's where we're going to be for most of the night tonight. If you have a Bible, we're in John 1, or if you just want to follow along in the reading in your bulletin. What I'd like to do tonight is just talk about uh, four reasons that Jesus was born into our world. For, so for those of you who love to take notes, you're going to love this because there's like four things that you can write down and then make little, you know, this is this is for you. The first reason is this. Jesus comes to reveal the identity and nature of the true God. The, the, the Gospel of John begins like this. In the beginning. Now, if you know the Bible, your, your mind should already immediately be going to somewhere else in the Scriptures. The very beginning of the Christian Scriptures. Genesis 1.1. The very beginning of the Hebrew Bible. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. You see, this is exactly what John is thinking about. He wants us to be thinking about creation and the creator because he's going to tell us about this word, capital W, and he's going to progressively reveal what he is meaning when he says word. So he wants us to be thinking about creation because he's telling us that this word was actually present with God at the dawn of creation. Now, I know that you didn't come here tonight for a Greek lesson, but just indulge me for the next few minutes because the, the, the New Testament, the world in which it was written was the Greco-Roman world. And so the manuscript, the original manuscripts of the Bible, the New Testament are written in Greek. They were written in Greek. And so sometimes it's helpful to dig into some words a little bit. So we read that in the beginning was the word. Now, what is the word, the Greek word for word is logos. Some of you Bible scholars know that logos. And one of the things that logos uh, can mean is divine utterance or divine communication, something that emanates as a communication from God himself. So John's not telling us about a person yet. He's just telling us there was this word, this sort of eternal light that was with God at the dawn of creation. An utterance of God. And you notice in the first verse, he says, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. 
That little verb was is actually fairly important. Aren't you so excited that you came out late on Christmas Eve to hear a sermon about the word was? But you see, in the Greek, the word was is in the imperfect tense. And so it tells us, what it tells us is that John is not telling us just about an isolated past event, one time, one off event in the past. Rather, was in this uh, passage means something like continuous existence. If you read it uh, literally, it would say something, it would mean something like this. In the beginning, the word was continually existing and the word was continually existing with God and the word was continually existing as God. You see what John is doing, he's, he's wanting us to lean in and to be curious, to press in about the identity of this word of which he speaks. Now in verse 3, John goes on and he says, all things were made through him. Through him. So now we're getting a little bit more information about this. This word is a him. It's a person. It's a personal being him and he says without him nothing that was that came into being came into being without him that is this person this him is actually the agent of creation he's the one through whom the entire cosmos the expanses of the galaxies came into being came to have their existence now what we're going to do is just fast forward down to verse 14 And John is really going to begin to reveal exactly what he's talking about here. And he says this, and the word became flesh. The word became flesh. That is this eternal light that existed with God before creation and in creation and existed as God robed himself in frail human flesh as a child in a manger. He walked among us, John says. He lived among us. That is, this person became a human being. This light of God came into the world of darkness and began to flood it with his light. And he actually walked this earth and he felt dirt and sand under his feet. He felt the cool ocean breeze in the morning on the Sea of Galilee. He felt joy in the presence of his friends. He felt sadness when he was rejected by his people. He is pure 100% flesh and blood. Now, this little, uh, this little passage here that says lived among us, or some translations uh, translate it dwelt among us, the Greek there is a word eskenosin, and what it literally means is pitched his tent. It means that God came in Jesus and, and set up camp in the midst of humanity. It's the same word that gets used in the Old Testament to describe the tabernacle, which was the place where the fullness of God's presence dwelt and Moses would go and meet God and speak to him face to face in all of his glory. And you see what John is trying to show us? He's trying to show us that the identity of this eternal word is the eternal son of God who was born into human flesh and was who was the very embodiment and the fullness of God's presence walking in our midst. And John, his beloved disciple, says, I've seen him. I've touched him with my hands. I've heard him. I've seen him face to face. I've watched him work countless miracles. You see, John is saying, this Jesus that I'm telling you about, he's he's the dwelling place of God. He actually came down to us to reveal the fullness of God's presence. That's why 
the author of Hebrews that we heard from tonight can say things like this. Speaking of Jesus, he is the reflection of God's glory and the exact imprint of God's very being. You see, there's so much confusion about who Jesus is in our world, in our culture. Is he just a teacher? Is he, you know, kind of like a zealous early Jewish rabbi who just like had a political mission to overthrow the Romans? Like, what was he? Who was he? And the scriptures over and over again tell us he's the reflection of God's glory. Do you want to know who God is? Look long and hard at Jesus, John is telling us. He is the God of Israel, of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, walking as a man. You see, Jesus is not a philosophy. He's not a set of, or a set of rules or a, or a religious system. He's God embodied in our midst as the Savior of the world. Now, it begs the question, what does he come to save us from? And you know the answer to this question is that Jesus, and this is number two, the reason that Jesus is born into our world, Jesus was born into our world to save us from sin. Now, there are a lot of misconceptions about what sin is. There's a, there's a, there's a very reductionistic view of what sin is in our world. And so you probably have heard that sin is like wrongful deeds or like being naughty. It's when you slip the candy bar in your, to your pocket and you don't pay for it. Shame on you. Or you lie on your self-employment uh, reporting on your taxes for personal gain. But you see, friends, I'm afraid that sin is a far bigger dilemma than our propensity to make bad decisions that offend God. It's a far bigger dilemma than that, that we are in. Uh, the Episcopal priest and, and well-known author Fleming Rush, Rutledge describes it like this. She says it so beautifully. I just want to steal her words for us tonight and dwell on them for a minute. She says, to be in sin biblically speaking, means something very much more consequential than wrongdoing. She says it means being catastrophically separated from the eternal love of God. It means to be on the other side of an impassable barrier of exclusion from God's heavenly banquet. It means to be helplessly trapped inside one's worst self, miserably aware of the chasm between the way we are and the way God intends us to be. Whew. You see, in our, our wrongdoing and our, our sin and our, our, our daily uh, uh, acts of re- rebellion and offense against God, those are just the result of living in this world that is under the power and presence of sin. You see, it's a rather hopeless situation if you think about it. Because there's no good advice that we can follow. There's no good advice that we can live out that will actually allow us to get us out of this situation. But this is also where the story makes room for the good news. You see, the good news that we celebrate tonight on Christmas when we, when we gaze on these, these manger scenes, or, uh, if you're fancy, crush, um, the good news is we're so broken and so lost. There's nothing we can do to fix our own situation. We're so estranged from God and there's nothing we can do about it that God actually in humility comes down to us. You see, this is what's absolutely unique about Christianity among all of the spiritual philosophies and religions of the world. Almost every religion of the world and almost every spiritual teaching of the world uh, has at its core a sort of basic teaching that says there's some good advice and some uh, life principles that you need to follow to get you where you need to be. To enlightenment, to salvation, to be accepted by God, you need to work your way up by following good advice, following rules, and uh, just doing all of the right things. 
You see, in Christianity, is unique because it says, actually, that can't save you. And so God instead in, 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 in Christ comes down into the world to find us and to save us. That's good news. That's what we celebrate tonight when we look at this child in a manger. Now, this is number three. And this is, this is my favorite one. Because I, 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 because I hate our enemy, the enemy of our souls so much. I see the power that he has in people's lives, in my family, in my circle of friends. I, I can't stand him. He's our enemy. But this is the good news. Listen, Jesus came into this world to destroy the powers of darkness. Jesus came into this world to destroy the powers of darkness. You see, none of the, none of this story about Christmas and the story of the Bible, it will, none of it will make full sense unless we acknowledge and see that there's actually a cosmic battle going on in a, in a, in a realm that we can't see that overlays with ours between darkness and light. Now, I'm not talking about yin and yang and they kind of balance each other out and it keeps the universe in balance because we see that in reality, the truth the light actually cannot be overcome by the darkness, as, as John says. They're not equal. You see, it, in our day and age, it's not popular to believe in Satan or demons. As in, nobody wants to talk about that. You don't hear it from the pulpits anymore because it's kind of like embarrassing or something, I guess, because, well, we've got science now, so we don't need to believe in this world of spirits and demons floating around and stuff. And, and, and all the while, the enemy's like, <laughs> I love it. This is great. That's right. That's right. C.S. Lewis, that brilliant um, atheist, be- become Christian, uh, one of the most uh, staunch defenders of the Christian faith in the earlier 20th century, said this. He said, there's two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall about the devils. One is to disbelieve in their existence. The other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. They themselves are equally pleased by both and hail a materialist or a magician with the same delight. And John tells us the light shines into the darkness. The light floods the darkness of the situation that we find ourselves living in. And the darkness has not overcome it. What is this darkness? You see, when you know the story of Adam and Eve, the story of Adam and Eve isn't about Adam and Eve just woke up one day and they were having a bad day and they were like, eh, forget God. Let's just kind of like do our own thing. No, they were actually lured into it by a, a creature who had intentions to lure them into his own rebellious state of being. This, this sort of supernatural creature who seems to have already been in rebellion against God and he shows up in the form of a serpent for whatever reason. And he, and he, and he draws them away from their fellowship in the presence of God by trying to become God themselves. And all through scripture, we see this kind of battle for humanity. Between what St. Paul, between who St. Paul calls the prince of the power of the air. It should give you goosebumps. Between him and God, who's actually reaching out to, to, to humanity, to all of us, to each one and each and every one of us in this room tonight to say, I love you. You're lost. I'm shining my light into the darkness. I'm opening your ears and opening your eyes so that you can see. And I can tell you who wins in the end. First John chapter three tells us this. For this reason, the son of God appeared. For this reason, the word became flesh. For this reason, Jesus was born into this world. He says to destroy the works of the devil. 
There's this great story in Mark chapter 1, and Jesus is just starting his public ministry. He's filled with the Holy Spirit. He goes into the synagogue, and he begins to teach. And the presence of his holiness and his power is so strong that a man who's oppressed by a demon begins to... The demon begins to manifest and speak to Jesus. And Jesus is casting the demon out. And you know what the demon says to him? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Have you come to destroy us? Do you know what the answer to that question is? (laughs) Hallelujah. It's yes. Why is this important for us to know? Why is it important for us to talk about this on Christmas? You see, this is such a reality that people, people don't see. You see, there's a blindness in the world. John is always giving us these contrasts between light and darkness. And he sees that the world is under the power of darkness, which is blindness. And what does light do? It reveals, it exposes, it makes known, it illuminates. St. Paul wrote this about the enemy's power over this world. These are, these are, these are chilling words. This, this, this reality that he describes. He says, the God of this world, he's talking about the devil. He says, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Jesus Christ, who is the image of God. You see, Satan, his game is deception. Jesus called him the father of lies. It's what he does best. And he's a master of it. And Paul says that the, the, the world, the, the, the world of unbelief lies with blinders on their eyes because Satan actually has people deceived and blinded. From what? From recognizing um, Jesus as a great teacher? No, he doesn't care if you believe that. He's content with that. He keeps them blind from what? Paul says, from seeing the light of the glory of the gospel of Jesus Christ. You see, whether maybe you just dismiss Jesus altogether or you, you, you count him as something less than God, the, the, the creator God and the savior, or you believe that any path can get you to God, or you just simply ignore Jesus, Satan is equally content with any of these. He doesn't care. He just doesn't want people coming to Jesus on their faces and seeing his glory and recognizing it and receiving him, not just as savior, but as Lord of their lives, as their only lifeline out of this dark world. He doesn't care which one as long as he can keep people in blindness. But here's the good news, friends. The light has shone into the world and the darkness doesn't have the power to hold it back. You see, Jesus talked about the kingdom of God being on the, the offense. He says it's violently, uh, uh, violently advancing against the forces of evil. The, the kingdom of God is not on the defensive. It's on the offense in and through the person of Jesus. And it's this power of darkness that's, that's in the world keeping blind that compelled God's compassionate heart to look on us and to, to decide in and of himself to take on the flesh of a man to come and make himself known to us, to, to throw light in the darkness in the person of his son. Now, why do so many people not see that? Why do so many people reject that? Why do so many people live as if that's not true? Jesus actually tells us in John chapter 3. He said, the verdict, this is what Jesus says in John chapter 3. These are the words of Jesus. He says, this is right after when he says, you know, for God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son. It's at the one memory verse everybody knows. It, Jesus says this. This is the judgment. The light has come into the world and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. That's the reason that people won't see the glory of Jesus Christ because they love the darkness, because their works are evil. 
We're comfortable in that. Friends, I lived that life for so long. I tell you, looking back on it and knowing Christ now, it's boring. There's nothing in it. You're just like on a cycle of trying to find meaning and purpose and happiness and pleasure. And you just, there's just an emptiness that never goes away because God created you for fellowship with Him, to have joy in Him. You see, Jesus, He came to fight for us. He came to fight for you in this cosmic battle and to, to win a victory by giving His life on the cross. St. Paul tells us that the powers of evil, the principalities and powers, they were disarmed of their power at the cross because Jesus shed His blood so that sin could be forgiven. We, could no longer, we would no longer have to be held captive by the powers of sin, by the powers of the evil one. It's really quite an amazing reality. John tells us in another place in Scripture, he says, in this is love. Not that we loved God, but that He loved us and gave His only Son as the atoning sacrifice for our sins. That's love, isn't it? You didn't wake up one day and think, I I, I love God. No, Paul says we were dead in our trespasses and sins and God, He came down and He shook us up out of our sleep and He said, wake up! And He showed us Jesus and enabled us to call on His name for salvation. And this is love, not that we loved God, but that He loved us. Reason number four, this is the final one. I'm losing my voice, so I've got to shut up anyway soon. I've been doing this all night. Jesus was born into this world so that we could have a joyful, abundant life in him. I bet if I asked how many of you would like to have a joyful and abundant life, you would probably all raise your hands, right? Right? But you see, the problem is, is that humanity in, in, our, in, in our blindness, we actually try to achieve that joy and that abundant life in things that can never give it to us. And it's like this, this vicious cycle, whether it's like a job or a career you're pursuing, a, a, a new place at New Smyrna Beach, a new boat, new friends, a new community, a new, a new country club. And you, you keep trying to, to find joy and abundance and all these things. And yet it's like, man, do you ever realize that you just like have to keep accumulating stuff to try to keep staying happy? That's because there's something in here that God made. He marked you with his own image for relationship with himself. And you're in that, that part of you is actually crying out under, under everything else for fellowship with the Heavenly Father. You see, that's what Jesus came to give to us. You see, facing the reality of the power of darkness and all this stuff, and this is why I talk about it, facing the reality of that actually allows us to see that the good news is actually far better than we could have ever imagined. You see, the, the world that we live in, it, it, people apart from Christ are far more blind and helpless than, than, they, than they realize. But the gospel teaches us this. It teaches us that we're far more blind and sinful than we could ever realize, but we're also far more loved and forgiven than we could have ever hoped for. That's an amazing thing. That's an amazing thing, friends. That is the nature and character of the God that Jesus reveals to us. John tells us, he said, Jesus came, he was full of grace and truth. Full of grace. Say full of grace. All right, just want to make sure you're still awake. He says, Jesus is full of grace. That is, he enjoys giving himself to us. Grace is a gift. It means the word literally in Greek means gift. Jesus loves to give himself to people. He's hungry to do so. And yet there, there are so many people who are living their lives as if he does not exist. I was thinking about this the other day. I was in my office and I'm praying and I said, Father, I just felt overwhelmed. And I said, Father, would you just like share your broken heart with me for the world that you created and that you love? And this is the thought he gave me. This is the thought he gave me. 
I walk home, I have a, one, uh, an almost two-year-old, an almost four-year-old, and I walk in from work every day, and, you know, they always come and they run, and I squeal and scream and throw their arms around me, and it's like the greatest moment of my day. And, and, and the father said to me, imagine walking in and being invisible to them. And, and, and like, like wondering, like, Lydia, Ben, Benjamin, why aren't you, why don't you see me? Why aren't you coming to me? Like, I love you so much. Like, I, I gave you life. I want to, I want to, I want to be with you. I want you to come and sit in my lap. I want fellowship and communion with you. And, and then, uh, and like, imagine that they just are walking there as if I'm some ethereal mist that they can't see and they can walk through. That's the thought that the Father gave me, and it overwhelmed me to tears to think that the Father in heaven actually has a broken heart for the world that is trying to make its way apart from Him and apart from relationship with Him. The Bible tells us that it's not God's will that anyone should perish, but that all should come to repentance and come to a knowledge of the truth. That is what God came to do in this little Christ child that we celebrate tonight is he actually gave us a way because we couldn't do it for ourselves to, to see truth and light and to find an abundant life of joy. It's not, a, it's not the easiest life in the world. It certainly isn't. Jesus promised us that we'll suffer persecution. He says the, the world will hate you. They hated me. It's like, oh man, sign me up. Sign me up. The world will hate me. Sign me up. But friends, he's worth it. It's worth it because he's worth it. Jesus was telling some parables in Luke chapter 15. And there were some religious people there. You know, there's so many people like this today. They're very religious, but they actually don't know God. They They like the outward sort of form of stuff. They like rituals. They like traditions. They like rules, but they don't know God. There was a lot of those in Jesus's day. Some of them were Pharisees. Not all the Pharisees were bad guys. Don't let anyone tell you that. St. Paul was a Pharisee. Anyway. He told them, he said, he told, told these parables about how desperately God searches for the lost. And he said this to the, to the religious people. He said, I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. She might say to herself, I'm not worthy. I'm just a, you know, I'm just a sinner. It's just who I am. I don't know. I'm so far from God. I can never do anything. And God says, I want you. I want you to be mine. I love you. I sent my son for you. And I'm searching for you. You see, nobody, nobody just starts decide to search for God on their own and comes to Christ on their own. If, when that happens, it means that God has been in pursuit of you already. That's what grace is. Grace enables us to believe, to put our faith, to trust, entrust our lives to the Lord Jesus. You know, we all long for someone to delight in us. We all long for, for someone to love us and delight in us. And that's exactly what God does when we turn to him. Not only does he love us, the scriptures say that he sings with joy over his people. It says in his presence, there is fullness of joy. Jesus said to his disciples, I've told you these things so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. Friends, this is this is why Christmas is a season of joy. Because it's the revelation of the true God. It's the, it's the declaration that our sins have been paid for. It's not, a, it's not a declaration that we need to start working harder to please God. It's that Jesus accomplished what we couldn't and we just need to put our trust in Him. And He wipes everything away. He takes the record that's standing against us, the, the, the sin debt, and he, and he cancels all of it. He says, your debt's gone, it's paid for. Imagine that. Imagine somebody giving you a debit card and saying there's, there's no limit 
It's just yours. It's free. Anytime you make a mistake, you, you grieve me, you fall into sin, you can swipe it, you can come, you can ask for forgiveness, and I will continue to be with you. So why believe any of it? Why believe any of it? Why make Christmas about anything other than a, a sort of an annual time for feasting and exchanging gifts with family and friends? Friends, you can study the ancient manuscripts. You can start digging into all the philosophy and, you know, Christopher Hitchens versus William Lane Craig on YouTube, and I'll see who's got the stronger arguments. You can start trying to, uh, you can get a systematic theology degree. You can do all of these things. You can analyze and analyze and observe. But you see, that will only get you so far. I did that. And I came to this point in my life where God says, yeah, how's that going for you? And when I somewhat reluctantly got on my knees, everything changed. You see, it'll only get us so far because Christianity is not a philosophy of life or a, or a collection of ideas. It's a person to be experienced. You see, it's all about Jesus. It's all about His person. It's about knowing Him, walking with Him, intimacy with Him. His desire to, to, to make you a friend. Jesus said to his disciples, He who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him, and listen to this promise, I will love him and manifest myself to him. You know, I've heard people say, I prayed to God and asked to help out. I needed a new car, and I never heard anything back, so why should I believe in him? The arrogance that we have in approaching God, the eternal God, who breathes and stars explode in the galaxies. And we say, oh, you didn't, you know. Jesus said, the one who loves me, I will love him and I will manifest myself to him. Jesus said to his disciples, I chose you. You did not choose me. I chose you to go and bear fruit for my kingdom. You see, he said, then he goes on and he said this, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word. See, Jesus here's this thing and this is another big misconception in Christianity is that so long as you kind of like give lip service and acknowledge that that Jesus is is the Savior and that he died for your sins then you'll go to this nice place called heaven when you die but actually the Bible doesn't really teach that it actually teaches that the gospel is far more than that it's actually to love Jesus and to keep his word it's actually to live a life that shows that you have intimate communion with him. Because if you have intimate communion with him, the, the sort of the, the sin habits and the unforgiveness that you're holding towards that person, the bitterness, the sort of just, you know, chip on your shoulder, whatever, those things start to lose power. Because the, the life of Jesus is, just begins to flow in you more and more throughout the years of knowing him. And Jesus says, that is what a Christian is. It's someone who, who loves me, who gives their allegiance to me and allows me to come and live with them and to transform them. Friends, it's a promise that's made to each and every person in this room tonight. I don't care if you're an addict right now. I don't care what you're addicted to. I don't care what you did last night when nobody was around and you were on the computer. I don't care if you've been worshiping the devil every day this last week. God loves you. And he wants to wipe the, the debt of sin away. And make you his own child. That's why Jesus came. He came as a baby, but he grew up to, get, to give his life and to hang on that, this crazy Roman torture device that we, that we hang in our churches. 
for us. And, and, and tonight as we, we, we gather here and we're going to sing all the songs that we always sing and, you know, there's so, there's sort of like a normalcy to it and you know what to expect and you know the words and hark, yeah, it's now, hark the herald angels sing and we kind of get used to that, that routine. And my prayer for us tonight is that, that moving forward throughout our worship tonight that the, the words would really just begin to grab at our hearts. And that, that if you're here tonight and God is stirring in your heart and you, you have questions and you study, you're feeling this tug and you don't know what it is and some, something that has been said from up here tonight is stirring in you, that you would just kind of allow God with his, his gentle and powerful voice to speak to you. And, and whether or not you, you, you're a Christian who's kind of wandered far from him, it's called backsliding, kind of backsliding into the ways of the world and not really living like you know Christ anymore or, or you're someone who just has not had the opportunity to ever know him or you're a person who just wants to be you're close to him but you want to be closer. When, when we have communion tonight, I want you to all feel welcome to come up to the altar rail. If you've been baptized, I don't care what denomination, you can receive communion as, a, as, a, as an outward symbol that you want to be close to the Lord Jesus who loves you. And if you haven't been baptized, just let us know and cross your arms over your chest and we're going to say a brief word of blessing over you. But by coming up here, you're, you're acknowledging, I, I need to move forward and I need to, I need to put myself in the presence of this, this amazing, amazing Lord who gave his life for me, who loves me with every fiber of his being. I don't have anything else. Jesus said this, I'm the light of the world. Whoever follows me, will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. That is what we celebrate tonight, friends. Let's pray. Everything. You were there at the dawn of creation. Your spirit hovered over the waters and began to bring order to the chaos. You're there with your people, the Israelites, speaking through the prophets, calling people into a covenant relationship with their Creator. And Lord, when you saw that we're unable to live the lives that you intended us to live, you came and died, Lord, for our sin, taking the penalty that we justly deserved so that we could be reconciled to you. So, Father, I just ask right now that you just release the, the, the work and the voice of your Holy Spirit in this place tonight to minister uh, to, to, to brokenness. I pray that you would, um, anybody just experiencing condemnation or shame or guilt, Lord, that you would just remove that and that you would put lo- words of love and, 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 and your attractive grace there. Lord, I ask for uh, your, your work in the hearts of people who are, who are not where they need to be with you, Lord, and that you just draw them forward and woo them with your love. Your word says that your kindness leads us to repentance. So God, we ask now that as we join, we come back into this place of worship and in, in song and in word, that you would just enliven our hearts with the joy that, it, that we have the privilege of celebrating here in this country without being persecuted when we gather together in church. Lord, let us not take it for granted. So we ask you now, Father, come and, and just pour your love out over and through this place tonight. In Jesus' mighty name we pray. Amen.